Well, let's just jump right in into Matthew chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 9. If you need one, raise your hand. They'll bring one right from the back. They've got a stack of them. We'd love for you to have your Bible in your hand. Read God's Word for yourself. Find your way around and know, uh, know your way around the Bible. So if you need one, they're right there. Just raise your hand and you'll get one. Here's what we're talking about. We're in this series, Jesus Works. Jesus works, and he, he can do miracles. That's why he came to earth. It was to show us that he loves us and cares for us, that he's God come in human flesh. You can put your faith in Jesus. If you back up, well, it's actually ahead a little bit, but um, earlier in the story than we are right now, in Luke chapter 4, there's a recorded story where Jesus comes back from his baptism and back from the temptations in the wilderness to his hometown of Nazareth, and he goes to the synagogue on the, the Sabbath, and he's asked to speak, and he opens the book of Isaiah, and he reads from the scroll this passage, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says, Jesus closed the scroll and he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they all liked it. They loved the fact that he was going to do those things, give uh, liberty and sight and uh, the Lord's favor. And then he went on in the sermon, kind of messed it up, I guess, but um, he told them that, you know, God was going to use everybody in the world. God loved everybody, including uh, Gentile people. And he gave a couple of examples of how God had blessed Gentiles and they, they got so irritated they grabbed him by the collar on his robe and you know, marched him out of church and uh, took him to a cliff to throw him off. And Jesus decided to move to Capernaum, and he did. And uh, so moved down to Capernaum about 15 miles away. And there was an extra long day if you were going to walk it. And um, he began to preach and then to do miracles. And Jesus did a lot of miracles, not just one. In fact, we've been in this in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 now for a little while. And if you back up and look at Matthew 8, Jesus heals a leper. He heals a servant of a centurion. He heals Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. And then he healed a lot of people in their front yard that night when word got out. And then he, he healed two men that had been possessed by demons and a paralyzed man who'd been brought by his friends and a bleeding woman. And he raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead. And then he heals two blind men and a man with an evil spirit who can't talk. I mean, Matthew is making the point, just in case you missed it, it wasn't a fluke. It wasn't just a, a one-time coincidence or maybe, you know, that was just uh, something that somehow he did. Jesus is filled with the power of God. He's got the power to do miracles. He works because he's God. You can place your faith in Jesus. You can trust him with your life. So let's look at verse 27. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David! Have mercy on us, son of David! And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, and he said, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away, and they spread his fame throughout all that district. Now, there's been plenty of prophets, plenty of preachers that have come before Jesus, and Jesus came with the good news to share, but none of those prophets or preachers that had come before had the power to restore sight. Not one. There's no example in the history of the world where before Jesus, before where blind people were made to see. <clears throat> in fact, there's no examples in the Old Testament of blindness being cured and somebody being given sight. Giving of sight is something only God can do. 
And when God was recruiting Moses for a job he didn't want to do, and he's saying, you need to go to Egypt to set uh, my people free, Moses said to him, I, I, I can't talk. And God spoke to him in Exodus 4, verse 11, a little irritated. It says, the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you should speak. The psalmist was talking about this, and he said, The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. I mean, it was the task of the coming Messiah. It has messianic significance. In that day, Isaiah said, the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Then he said in chapter 35, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the layman will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Isaiah 42, I'm the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring the prisoner from the dungeon, from the prison's those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That's my name. My glory I give no other. So in this story we're looking at today, these two blind men are desperate. They need help, and they, they're looking for a miracle, and they have heard about Jesus' healing power. They've never seen it themselves, but they've heard it from others. So they have this flicker of hope. If only I could be healed. If only we could get to Jesus. If only. You ever done that? If only I didn't have this problem, my life would be great. If only I could reach this milestone, then things would be going fine. If only I had this much of this or this much of that, then I would... No. Paul said, did some of that. He prayed three times for God to take away a thorn in the flesh. And three times God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is demonstrated in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is demonstrated in your weakness. God's not going to take your problem away, but he will give you the insight and the wisdom and the courage and the fortitude to face it and to deal with it if you ask him. These two blind men come. They've got a problem they can't solve, so they've called out to Jesus outside, you know, have mercy on us, son of David, and he's ignored them. So they follow him all the way into the house. And they're crying out because what Jesus could do for them. Isn't that why we follow Jesus? Because what he could do for us? Well, sure it is. I think Jesus ignored them outside because they called him son of David. Son of David was a messianic description. It was that you're, they're saying, we think you are the Messiah. You, we think you're the promised one who was to come. And uh, the son of David would be royal. He would be king material. And in the crowd, there's people who sure want to have a Messiah, and they would jump right in line to follow him and to believe he's going to lead the charge to throw the Romans out. And Jesus had bigger plans than that. And there's people in the crowd who are saying, we want to keep the status quo because... Life's pretty good the way it is, even though we can complain about it. And thank you very much. We want it to stay just like this. So son of David would have stirred up all kinds of political passions and would have been counterproductive to what Jesus' life goals are. Jesus never intended to be a political Messiah. Never. So when people were demon-possessed and then uh, met Jesus... They never called him the son of David. I don't know if you noticed, but when demon-possessed people would show up and Jesus would speak to them, they would say things like, what have we to do with you, O son of God? They knew he's God. 
These blind men have faith, which Pastor Chris read, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So the blind men have their blind faith. If we could just have a moment with Jesus, he could make things right. He's got the power, and he's filled with compassion. Let's go to Jesus. Well, he ignored him out in the street, but they track him down in the house. Maybe it's the house where he was staying, and they have a more private setting. And Jesus says to them, do you believe? Do you believe? This is so important to Jesus. I mean, he has left heaven behind. He has sacrificed. He has downsized. He's come into this world. He has been bound by time. He's, he's been bound by energy. So he gets tired. He gets thirsty. He gets hungry. He gets disappointed. He gets hopeful. And he's done all of that so that he could say, I want to share God's love with you, and so he could die for the sin of the world, yours and mine in particular. And these people have come to ask him for a miracle, and he says, do you believe? He's told other people, if you have just a grain of mustard seed, that's about, it's not as big as a grain of rice. But it's important to him that we believe. He isn't going to force people to follow him or to love him or to live in his presence forever. He doesn't man, want to make a robot out of anybody. You have a choice if you believe or not believe. But belief and unbelief are not on the same path, and they do not end at the same place. You understand that? So even with a little bit of belief or faith, you're moving in the right direction. People who place their faith in Jesus will end up in Jesus' home in heaven forever. Nobody with unbelief is going to end up in heaven. So do you believe? They go, yes, Lord. They had never seen the miracle of Jesus. They're relying on the testimony of others, just like you and me. And do you believe? I mean, there's only really one right answer, isn't there? Can you imagine these guys saying, well... <clears throat> No, we don't really believe in you, but try to impress us if you can. All right? And, uh, you know, with your power, surprise us with some sight, Lord. Convince us that you can do miracles, Jesus. Do you think Jesus would have given them sight? No. He wouldn't. I mean, it actually says in Matthew 13 that Jesus returned to Nazareth where they had tried to kill him after he preached. And uh, the second time around when he got there, it's in Matthew 13, Jesus finally said to them, even that time, and I think it was the last time he was ever recorded in Nazareth, he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And it says he did not do very many miracles there because of their unbelief. Jesus did miracles to help people to see and to prove that he's God and to bring glory to God. And he didn't do miracles just to put on a show. So these blind men are given sight according to their faith. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, when you see two people, they're hardly ever the same size or the same weight or exactly alike in what they like. And so if he's, if he's giving sight to two people based on their faith, I'm sure their faith isn't the same. You know what I'm saying? Some, one probably had a little more faith, one had a little less faith. But that doesn't mean one got 20-20 vision and one got 20-80 vision, right? It wasn't according to their faith of how much sight they were going to get. It was according to their faith that he was going to do a miracle in them. Do you have faith? And I realize I'm blessed to hang around with people of faith a lot of the time. You probably are too. But right after I got home from Israel this week, I'm at a funeral. And I'm standing with the grand stepdaughter or the step-granddaughter of the deceased. I, I mean, I know it's complicated, okay? And, and in the conversation, it came up that I had been to Israel. And then she says, well, I was Jewish. My father's Jewish. And I had three kids and then got divorced. And then uh, he ended up marrying when I was eight years old. 
And she's telling me the story, and then she moves on in the story to tell me about her 20-year-old something son and um, uh, how proud she is of him and what work he does in the electronic field, even though she doesn't have a clue what he's talking about when he comes and shares it with her. And so then there's a lull in our conversation. We're still waiting. So I said, well, so do you go to church anywhere? thought it was a good preacher question to ask, but uh, had forgotten that she had said she was Jewish. And she goes, nope. And that ended the conversation. Now things are kind of dead, you know. And uh, uh, fortunately, her 20-something son walked up about then, and uh, he says, so what were you doing in Israel? Why would you go there? Well, I realized, wow, I'm talking with unbelievers at this point, people who don't know the Lord. There's not, a, there's not a faith in Jesus Christ going on in their heart. These are not people of faith. Here's an opportunity. I don't have a chance to read them the four spiritual laws and have them get on their knees and pray or anything, you understand. But it's not a moment just to say, oh, well, I just wanted to see it. I hadn't been, you know, I haven't spent enough time there yet. Um, no, so I took the opportunity to say, well, what makes Israel so important to me and to so many Christians is we believe that Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, actually is God come in human flesh. And Israel was the place he chose to live and to, to walk and to teach people and to do miracles. And then he was uh, killed just outside of Jerusalem. But he didn't stay dead. He came back from the dead. So we worship him as God. So that's why it's so important. I want to go see the important sites that they have preserved from his life to kind of walk in the footsteps of Jesus as I walk with Jesus. Well, fortunately, the kid goes, oh, that's cool. <laughs> Whew, you know, and about then they got there and so we could go on with the, the funeral. But, you know, we got to take those kind of moments that come along to, to share in little bits, to plant a little seed because maybe it'll start faith growing these blind men were healed by Jesus through the power of God. And then Jesus gave them as their Lord and Savior. He gave them the first order, uh, a, a command. And it was a difficult order. Jesus said, don't tell anybody. I just gave you sight you've never had in your life. Don't tell anybody. I don't know how Jesus thought they would accomplish that. Would you be able to accomplish that? I mean, if you had a neighbor who you knew was blind as a teenager and suddenly you saw him behind the steering wheel of his dad's car driving down your street, wouldn't you go ask a few questions? Of course you would. Uh, ahem, thought you were blind. Why, why are you driving? Those could be my flowers or my toes, you know, one of the two. Um, yes, you'd ask questions. When I was at Azusa in the health class, the teacher had said at one point, you know, if you tried... Blind, being blindfolded for 24 hours just to know what blindness felt like, I'll give you extra credit. So I decided to try it on a Friday. And so when I got to class on Friday morning, I told a little white lie. I told people I'd had an accident and it affected both eyes and they had to both be covered. Well, people around, gathered around. They asked more questions than I expected. I had to make up more little white lies. And it stopped class. People were concerned. And then they took my lie, hook, line, and sinker, and... They even stopped class to pray for me, which I wasn't really comfortable with. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> now we're lying to God, you know? And somebody leading me across campus, you know, wasn't really paying attention, walked me right into a post. <laughs> and so I realized, you know, blindness would be a game changer. You couldn't drive, you couldn't read, you couldn't get around. Fortunately, you can still eat, you know, but, you know, it would change your whole life. I think Jesus wanted these men to return home with as little stir as possible, kind of like a diver entering the pool with as little splash at the end 
as it could. And instead, they do a one and a half gainer, double loop, jackknife, belly flop. They, it says, but they spread his fame. And that little adversative, little word, but there shows that they didn't follow Jesus. They went off in their own direction. They wanted to head hot news. And they told everybody. They didn't even try to do what Jesus said. That's interesting. If you step back just a chapter to Matthew 8, Jesus had gone across the lake. On this side, it's Jewish. On that side, it was Gentile. Over there, he had healed two demon-possessed men. Remember, and all the pigs had raced down with the demons into the lake and had drowned. The town people came out. They're so afraid of Jesus. They say, please leave. He's leaving. The two guys want to come with him. And Jesus said, no, stay here. Tell everybody how good God is and what he's done in your life. And they did. It says they went to the Decapolis, to all ten cities, telling everybody. Now, here it is a chapter later on this side of the lake with Jewish people, and Jesus says... Don't tell. And they couldn't keep it to themselves. The reason Jesus said don't tell is because he knew the crowds would swell and he wants people in his crowd to be wants it filled with people who have the right questions. Not how do I get my body healed? How do I get my soul right with God? And when the crowds got so big, he couldn't come into town. He had to stay out in the wilderness, and people would come out to him. He wanted people to believe that he he is God, and he was sent from God, and he's worth worshiping as God, not just to be handing out free medical advice. I don't think he ever had a plan to go back to the other side of the lake so they could tell everybody they wanted and open them up to the gospel. And it was a new idea that God cared about everybody in the world. There's a few other examples in the Bible where Jesus said to people, don't tell. With lepers, he said, don't tell. With uh, demon-possessed people who are yelling, we know who you are. You're the son of God. He said, don't tell. He wouldn't let them tell the truth, even though it was the truth. With the disciples, with Peter, when Jesus said, who do people say I am? He said, well, you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said, well, don't tell. Not yet. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw him transformed and glorified in front of them. And he said, don't tell. Not yet. You know, sad these blind men received what they wanted from Jesus, but they didn't do Jesus' will. He saved them. He changed their life, but they didn't put him in charge of their life. They didn't obey him like you would obey a king, even though they'd called him the son of David. They were not fully devoted followers of Jesus. They were just customers getting the best bargain possible for themselves. So they really missed out on the biggest blessings of Jesus of the forgiveness of their sin, of his constant presence, of a life in heaven. I mean, Jesus works. He's got the power. See what I mean? I mean, the blind see. So our prayer would be, Lord, open our eyes that we may see you for who you truly are. In our life and in our church and in our world, help us to demonstrate our faith in you by our obedience. Then verse 32, he does another miracle. It says, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demons had been cast out, the mute man spoke. There's a very similar story to this in Luke 11. But this tortured man couldn't even get himself to Jesus. He needed help. He's possessed by a demon, and he, he, he can't talk. And sometimes people sink so low that they need help to come to faith. Do you know, one of the dangers for people, if you ever get so cold, is hypothermia, where if your body temperature, which is usually around 98.6, drops to 95 or lower, your body cannot get itself warm. And 
you would need help from the outside to help get you warm. Adding another blanket just wouldn't do it. And this man has been so tortured that he doesn't have faith, but his friends do. And they get him and they bring him to Jesus, which the demon in him would not have wanted to talk to Jesus. And Jesus forces the demon out of the man. It wasn't leaving on its own. See, we feel these pulls of evil in our life never maybe to that degree of demon possession, but we know that Jesus is greater. The Bible says, greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. And the people who brought this man to Jesus, they're the ones who have faith. They expected a cure. This was their friend. They remember him from way before this. They knew him in better days when he could talk and when he had control of himself. But something's come over him. They're not sure what and they're not sure how. But he stopped talking for so long that he's now considered mute couldn't talk even if he tried. And they say if we could just get him to Jesus, he could be himself again. And they did. And he was. And the proof was he talked. That's kind of funny to me. Nobody bothered to write down what he said. Right? But whatever he said brought glory to God. And then, verse 33, the crowds marveled. The crowds marveled, saying, wow, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Now, this isn't necessarily people of faith. They're probably just out for a Sunday afternoon drive, and they said, hey, let's go see what Jesus is doing. We've heard that kind of stir, kind of like you'd go to the fair to see, hey, is there any new good food at the fair? You know, they, they hadn't expected Jesus to be able to cure. They weren't anti-Jesus. They were just looking for the show. They were there for Jesus to wow them, not to change their hearts, not to change their whole lives. They wanted to be impressed. But they didn't think watching Jesus in action would change their lives. There's a guy I took to Promise Keepers once. He was my mechanic. He's a red-haired British guy who's a hard worker, always happy, always laughing, hard drinking at night. And I finally went to him one day and said, John, I'm going to this group called Promise Keepers. There's going to be a whole bunch of men. They're going to sing stuff. People are going to talk to us about Jesus. Would you like to go with me? He said, yeah. He went, I mean, he, he just got saved. Jesus came in his heart. We went down the front in tears. He asked the Lord to forgive him and to come into his life. And we come back home. And the next Sunday, he comes to church with his wife. And she was kind of, her purpose in life was to balance his enthusiasm. So she did everything she could to kind of be a wet blanket Okay, and it was sad, kind of, because she's the one who claimed to be the Christian, you know, but the second Sunday, they're coming to church. I'm out there on the sidewalk, and uh, her name was Anna, and they're coming along, and John goes, good morning, Pastor Ty. I said, well, good morning. Good morning, Anna. She goes, huh. I said, Anna, what? It's John. John, what's the matter with John? He's here at church. I said, yeah, isn't that good? <laughs> That's good news, isn't it? No, I think he's just here to impress me. He doesn't care about the Lord. I doubt his commitment. So I look at John. I said, John, could you tell me your commitment to Jesus Christ? Now, I was there. I walked down to the front with him. I heard him pray. I knew he asked for forgiveness. I knew the Lord had come in his life. I expected him to say something just like that. I came down. I prayed. I asked. The Lord forgave. He didn't. He stood there quiet, and then he goes, I said, John, please tell us about your commitment to Jesus Christ. He goes, I would become a missionary. I would become a missionary. And Anna goes, whoa, don't go overboard. <laughs> I mean, some people are just never going to be happy. Right? And there's a pastor named Wilbur Reese. He wrote a little poem called Three Dollars Worth of God. That was Anna. 
Wilbur Reese said, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a person of color or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God please? I mean, I think the key line in the poem is, I want ecstasy, not transformation. Basically saying, I want to be happy. I don't want to be transformed by Christ. But if you ask Jesus into your life, he's going to be the Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. I mean, is that really what you wanted when you came to church today, is a little bit of entertainment, hear a nice talk, or happy singing, or nice people to talk to, or a dollop of God on top of your breakfast? Because that's different than being a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. See, fully devoted followers believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus means what he says, that Jesus is to be honored and revered and obeyed even when it's difficult or seems impossible. I mean, that Jesus deserves to be our highest priority. He needs to be our highest priority and our greatest love if we're going to honor him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And it will not satisfy in the long run to just simply remain part of the inquisitive crowd, always asking more questions, always have, the jury's always still out, asking Jesus, what can you do for me? How can you impress me? Or to be one of the customers who wants $3 worth of God. Deep in our hearts, we know that we need more than $3 worth of God. So you've got the blind who see, the mute who speak, the crowd who applauds, and then there's one other group, of course, there always seem to be there, the scoffers who scoffed. The Pharisees said, rah, 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 he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Well, these men had deep convictions of their own before they ever got out there that day to see Jesus do miracles. They were sure that Jesus was a fake, he was a fraud. They couldn't explain his power, but they sure were not going to admit that he was God in human flesh or that he came from God. And there is no other explanation. It's the first time it had happened in the history of the world, but they were not going to give him credit for the obvious, that God was at work through Jesus. Instead, they blame it on the devil. They call something that was good evil, and they call something that's from God as powered from the, by the prince of demons. I mean, this really is the greatest blasphemy. And we know from reading the whole story that the Pharisees chose not to believe in Jesus. Even when he gave sight to the blind, they had their minds made up, and nothing was going to change that, not a miracle, not the facts. Even the power of God was all at work around them, and they were going to ignore that. Their minds were closed. You know, the word Pharisee means separate. And at one point, these people had wanted to live right lives that were pure and orderly, and they saw the evil in the world around them, and they wanted to separate from that. I saw plenty of those people in Israel caught in this trap, Jewish ones praying at the Wailing Wall, thinking if I pray and bow so many times, God will hear. Muslim ones, I mean, we were there during Ramadan. Not a good idea. If you're going to Israel, don't go during Ramadan. Okay, but they were getting ready for a party up on the Temple Mount. The next day, they expected 750,000 Muslims to show up on that one spot to pray. And then we saw Christians in churches just going through the motions. I mean, 
you know, many people in our world would view Christians that way, don't you think? People who are trying to live by higher standards, kind of proud of their lifestyle and their accomplishments and their humility, you know, thinking of themselves as better than others, willing to critique and find fault with just about anything. Problem was this approach led the Pharisees to separate from God as well. They'd become experts in the Bible, the law and the prophets. They could quote it by heart, but it never got in their heart. It was just in their head. And they never said, I got to stay connected to God and let God be God and be in charge of my life. So the blind men could see that Jesus was the son of David, but the religious leaders were blind to this fact. I hear somebody else talking. And then the mute man spoke. We don't know the words, but it caused people to give glory to God. Somebody's cell phone and their hearing aid is turned off, so we'll just ignore it. I, I thought it was in the whole system. Here's the takeaways for us from this. Jesus is the son of David. He's the promised Messiah, the Savior. And he works because he's God come in human flesh. And he came into this world to forgive people from their sin and to restore them into relationship with God. And that only happens if you believe in Jesus. You know, Jesus can fill us with his Holy Spirit. He can give us the right words to say at the right time. And he's still doing miracles. And our job is to place our full trust in Jesus as Savior and as our Lord. And to do what he says. And to follow him in full faith and obedience. And to listen for his voice. It's kind of fun listening to the cell phone. You know, uh, all the teenagers are going. And Pastor Eric today said to all of them, you know, in the instructions it said, leave your cell phone home. And I know every one of you is still secretly bringing it. He says, but it won't matter because when we get to camp at Hume Lake, there's absolutely no reception. <laughs> he said, so you can carry it for a couple of days, but then you won't have any reception either. We have reception with Jesus. He works, and he works through his people. We're going to be talking about that second part. He works through us the next couple of Sundays. It's a two-part series, and you won't want to miss it. Let's stand and sing together, shall we?